I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. All right, my good sis, how are you this morning or this evening, I should say? I know, right? I am groovy, great, glorious. Um, I can't think of anything else that starts with a G. Do you have one? Gangsta. Did you say glamorous? Oh, glamorous. Yeah. Glamorous. Okay. Gangsta. You let you didn't you did not um respond to me saying oh, my gangsta. bad. My, yes. Yeah. Keeping mm-hmm. a G over here. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um speaking of keeping a G, mm-hmm. let's discuss the hang time going on with Mahalia today. Thank you, sis. Me and Mahalia put in some work last night, throwing in some mini twist. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Y'all should see, I mean, it's very neatly done. It looks like it took either you five hours or a (laughs) professional two hours. I don't know. Yeah, it was me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's been a year. Yes, it has. Can you believe that? It's our (laughs) potiversary. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it has been 365 days-ish since we first launched the Human Doctor Pod. So... Yeah, that's pretty cool. And a huge shout out to everybody who's been rocking with us from day one, man. Realness, real talk. And also shout out to everybody who has ever left a review. You know, you and I talked about this offline about how cool it is that we literally meet up and talk and we are our entire selves. And that seems to be enough. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the goals was if we show up as our entire selves, maybe somebody listening will feel permitted to do the same. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's like, that in itself is the goal, right? Like, because we use so much cognitive and emotional energy up on trying to be other people or something other than who we are. And it is quite all right to be who you are. So you can be a black queer woman with a five hour twist hair job that you did yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And I can be a 51 year old graying, but ridiculously good looking (laughs) for my my age. (laughs) Yes. No lies told here. A man told me that he told me I was ridiculously good looking. Mm. And then I was like, like, I started to put my hand on my hip, like, hey, and he's like, I mean, to be an older woman. And I was like, damn, I had to throw the qualifier in there. (laughs) (laughs) It is all good. I have something to share. Yes, please. So I was in Cleveland, Ohio. I was a visiting professor at Metro Health Case Western, which is the program where I trained. And do you know what it felt like? Tell me. It felt like I was Rihanna coming back to Barbados. <laughs> I'm telling you, because I bet you when Riri go to Barbados, it's on and cracking. I mean, I was really received in love. And mm-hmm. so many people that trained me were still around. 
And my chair, he was the interim chair when I was a chief resident, but he left and went to a couple other institutions and is back now as the chair again. He was who invited me, Rick Blinkhorn. I got to stand at a microphone at Grand Rounds and basically publicly tell an entire auditorium what this man did for my career. He asked me at the start of my chief residency what I hoped to gain. And I said, I think I want to be a clinician educator and I think I want to be a stronger teacher. So every week he watched me teach in some setting, either it would be a report or he would come by and watch me when I was on wards. And every single Tuesday he would coach me on my teaching. Wow. For my entire chief year. And this was one-on-one. It was like a 30 minute meeting and it, it transformed me. So here was this white man who was sitting down with this black woman who went to a couple of HBCUs. I told him what I wanted to get out of the year and he put it on his calendar and committed to it. So what I got to say was every single teaching award I have ever gotten is his award too. Mm. Because I do not think that I would have had the courage to do some of the things that I did or, or at least hit the ground running like I did at Emory after coming out of such a small program if he had not poured into me like he did. So mm. it was so it was so dope. Have you been back to speak or was this the first time? It was my first time. I had not been back to Metro Health since I graduated in 2001. Dang. It was it was really special. And you know what? When he introduced me, he had a screenshot of my application. <laughs> it was, I was like, look, don't zoom in because uh, might be some things on there that might make y'all want to uninvite me. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, we go so hard as medical educators and there are, yeah, there are very public moments where we get awards and get accolades and everything. But, you know, the most meaningful things, they happen when nobody is looking and there was nothing shiny or pretty or public about what he did for me every single week. I mean, he was a chair. He was busy. It, it wasn't just the commitment of the meeting. He had to go somewhere and watch me teach. That's awesome. Dang. Well, it's nothing like being able to come back and express gratitude to, to the folks who got you to where you are. You know, the, the motto at UCSF is that it actually stands for you can stay forever. So, <laughs> but <laughs> if it ever comes to a point where I do leave, <laughs> I think that would be really special to come back and uh, get to kick it with folks that uh, have been such yeah. strong mentors for me too. Yeah. That's what he did for me. Shout out to Blinkhorn. Yeah. Shout out to Dr. Blinkhorn. Yeah. I also have a special shout out and that is actually for my dentist who I saw this morning, who happens to be a black woman in San Francisco doing excellent dental care. Okay. Your teeth do look kind of nice though. Thank you. There is nothing more reassuring than, well, number one, having a full set of twists that are going to last a minute. (laughs) And number two, knowing that your teeth are going to be good for at least the next six months. So all y'all yeah. who've been procrastinating on making that appointment, just do it. And Dr. Danny Marquis over near the Embarcadero will hook you up. Okay, Danny Marquis, I see you. Get that, get them, get them gums and those teeth together. Yeah, I'm with <laughs> it. All right. I, for one, am super excited to uh, <laughs> kick off this anniversary with a story from none other than the Dr. Kimberly Manning. All right. The what is experience? Experience. That is something that you have and I lack. First of all, it is something that we both have for some things. <laughs> 
and we don't have for other things. That is fair. Yeah. I spoke yeah. a little soon. That was a little, little off cuff, but yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know how to twist my hair myself. True story. I know how to twist my son's hair, but I don't have experience mm. with twisting my own hair. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just make like a quick side point. I, I realize like this is the beauty of intergenerational friendships. Just because there's a gap in uh, age and wisdom doesn't mean that we don't have things to teach each other. And that is the truth. Yes. I love that. And um, also, this is just proof that with intergenerational friendships, they can exist and not be weird. You can actually just be friends with somebody who's younger than you or yeah. older than you. There we go. All right. I can see the mic. Okay. So a few weeks ago, I had a story nestled in a story. Okay. I have a story adjacent to a story today. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Both are around experience. So I was uh, at Grady Hospital uh, on the wards one day, and I was talking to this lovely, lovely gentleman who had come into the hospital for chest pain. And this gentleman was very open, a great historian, and he admitted that, you know, before he had chest pain, he had been indulging in some cocaine. Mm -hmm. When I took the history from him and asked him, you know, about how often does he have cocaine? And he was like, every day, I'm a daily crack smoker. And I was like, okay, so we start talking about it. And uh, we talk about his chest pain. And fortunately, while he did seem to have some angina and some basal spasms, he did not have a a true myocardial infarction or anything. So he was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, we wanted to watch him a little bit more and get a stress test and make sure that there was no other coronary disease because sidebar cocaine can accelerate atherosclerotic disease. So just because it wasn't that this time does not mean you're not at risk. So he was in the hospital with us for, um, you know, maybe a couple of days. And on the second day, wasn't as acute anymore. Me and him were just getting cool. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking to him and um, it turns out that he had gone to an HBCU that Tuskegee used to play. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of started cracking jokes about our HBCUs and all this stuff. And wow, this guy had really been a high achiever. I mean, he was just somebody who, you know, you started to have that like look on your face where you look sad as you hear that this person who did so well and went to this prestigious HBCU and graduated and had a job and everything would end up in this situation, mm. which is, you know, with unstable housing and daily crack cocaine use and, you know, estranged from family and everything. So as we're talking, I just, I just, it's like, I, I have to ask, how did you end up using crack cocaine? And then he just threw his head back and he started laughing like mm. really, really hard. He's like, what's your idea of people who use crack? And I said, my idea of it. And he said, have you ever smoked crack before? He asked me. Mm. I said, have I ever smoked crack? No, sir. I've never smoked crack. He said, have you ever seen crack like held a crack rock in your hand? I think I would be terrified if I held a crack rock in my hand. Honestly, you know, no, I had never held a crack rock in my hand. I saw one like on the street one time before, but I never held one. And he was like, you know, it's funny how people who don't have any experience with a drug like crack, what they think. He said, I bet you, you picture me one day just taking a pipe, hitting it, and then just going crazy. Like you saw on that old movie, New Jack City. Mm hmm. Which really, seriously, is what I thought. I thought that at some point you have a lapse in judgment, you take a hit, and after that you chase the high for the rest of your life. That's the story. That's what we're told. And he was like, I don't hardly know anybody who started using crack that way. He said, you know, 
what happened was I was a daily weed smoker and I really enjoyed smoking weed. So I would smoke weed all the time. I would smoke after work. And one day I was with some friends and we were drinking and playing cards and everything. And somebody laced a, a joint with some crack, with some freebase. And it was wild. And I was like, what was that? As he told me the story, he said, yeah, my friend told me that I laced it with a little bit of something. It's not like using cocaine. It's just, you know, a little something when you want to kind of go a little harder. And they like laughed about it. So then the following week, they play, they play cards again. And the guy had what, what this, my patient referred to as a, pre, a primo. So he mm-hmm. would smoke primos with his friend. And then he found himself thinking about and looking forward to the next time he would get to do it. And then he went and got a little bit of crack to lace into his own weed. And he started doing it himself. And then he realized that it's just cheaper to go and get the crack because that's really after a while what you want. He said he didn't even realize he was getting hooked on it until it was really to a point where finally he was just, he was, didn't have any weed and he only had a certain amount of money and he had to choose between what he was going to get. And he decided Mm. he would go and get, you know, a rock. Yeah. He was like, I was stunned myself. He said, but everybody I know, it was a story kind of like that, like where they bumped into it or they were dating somebody and the person sort of normalized it. And eventually they found themselves using it. And, you know, we know that some people are more prone to addiction than others. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I come from a family of people who have dependencies on things and it just ruined my life. He's like, I just pretty much lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I lost everything. Um, And he had been in and out of recovery a few times and into um, centers, but Just this really interesting and highly intelligent man who was just saying that it's funny that doctors come and talk to you about drugs when they have no experience. You know that they've never experienced it, Mm. which connects me to something that happened to me in the primary care center, which is the other adjacent story of a man that I was trying to um, use my motivational interviewing on to get to um, stop smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And we went through this whole big discussion about it. And he was listening to me and he was telling me where he was on a scale of one to 10 and (laughs) doing all the, you know, I was doing all the good primary care moves. And finally, I was like, oh, so you think you're ready to set a quit date? Or do you want the quit line number? Um, You want some Chantix? You want some, you know, whatever. (laughs) He looks at me and he says, have you ever been a daily smoker, Dr. Manning? I said, no, sir, I haven't. He said, you ever smoked a cigarette? Not regularly, but you know, college, I smoked a cigarette or two. And he was like, have you ever been on an hourly job and had somebody come in and talk to you like you was a child? and piss you off real bad. And then you walk outside, light you one, lean against the wall and take a hard drag off of it. Have you ever done that? Mm. I said, no, sir. He said, have you ever come home to your house to find that your electricity got turned off and you know, you're not going to have the money to get it turned back on until you get paid again. So you just sit down on your porch, light you one and take a puff. Have you ever done that? And I said, no, I tell you what, have you ever been playing spades in the middle of the night (laughs) with your favorite people drinking Jack Daniels, talking shit and slapping down cards while smoking Newports? No, he kept going. You ever been pressure washing (laughs) your driveway in the summertime and just had a cigarette in your mouth while you pressure washing your sidewalk while you just listening to your favorite music on your headphones? You ever done that? No, he said, okay. He said, when you do at least one of those things, I think you will have an appreciation for what it is you're asking me to do. Mm. It's like you're asking me to break up with a friend. You're asking me to separate myself from a friend. 
And um, that's not an easy thing to do. I get all the stuff that will make my life better and my health better. I just want to make sure you appreciate what it is that you're asking of me. And the man who smoked the cigarettes and the man who smoked the crack cocaine, they taught me something that in my sort of life, right, my life with my parents who had me sitting at the kitchen table doing my homework and my mom and dad were college educated and went to work and where nobody was throwing anything. You know, I I didn't grow up in a life that had trauma around it, but I also never found myself in any space or any position where I got exposed to something like crack cocaine. And nah, I didn't come home and have my lights all cut off or have somebody talk to me crazy and belittle me on an hourly job and then step outside and take a drag off of a cigarette. But when, when he described it, it sounded like something that if I was in that situation, I just might want to take a drag off of a cigarette, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So I just say all of this to say every day I'm working to humanize my patients more. And one part of humanizing my patients more is appreciating their lived experiences, especially when they differ from my own. Yeah. Because you think you know, but you have no idea. Ever since that man told me that about cigarettes, I actually think about myself telling somebody to break up with a friend. This totally changed my approach to talking to people about smoking cessation. To me, like this is the whole purpose of narrative medicine and and stories in medicine. I think about this a lot in primary care, of course, when it comes to changing behaviors, but even something like, you know, managing diabetes or like taking medication every day or struggling with weight management, you know, all these things that here I am trying to give advice or tell someone how to change their life in ways that I've never really experienced. And how often do we actually take a pause to think about like, what narratives do we hold before we go into those conversations? Yeah. I mean, and especially this idea of stopping smoking, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or, Or even my idea of how somebody becomes a regular crack cocaine or any sort of illicit substance yeah. user. I mean, that man showed me that we were way, way, way more alike than we were different. Just like me, that guy went to an HBCU. Just like me, that guy has a degree on in a frame from an HBCU and was probably at the same games and homecomings and freak Nick and all of that stuff with me back in the day because he was my age. There was just this place where we diverged in the yellow wood you know, and who knows, like, what would have happened to me if I had been in a situation where somebody decided to lace a joint with, you know, some, some crack when I was at an emerging adulthood space in my life where I thought, Hey, I'll have some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned when you encounter folks in primary care, who, who we want to consider stopping smoking, like what, what changed for you after that? A lot, a lot, actually. No, I'm serious. A lot changed. Um, So again, now I think of it like an old friend, Mm. right? So, so now my approach is that when I find out how much someone smokes um, or how long a pack lasts them, which is usually my question I ask, I ask them to tell me when is their favorite time of day to smoke? What are the four favorite cigarettes that you have of your day? And a person will be like the one when I get up in the morning and, and have my cup of coffee. Okay. That one, the one when I get a, go and I sit on the commode and read the paper, that one. Okay. The one when I finish my dinner. Okay. That one. And then the one that I have out on my porch before I get ready to go to bed. 
Mm. Okay, that one. Now, that's four cigarettes, right? Yes, yeah, four cigarettes, which means if you're smoking a half a pack, that's 10 cigarettes. So which are the ones that you can really take or leave? Which are the ones that you hold in your hand that burn it between your fingers and you look and you didn't even smoke it off? So what we start with is saying under no circumstances, do you touch those four favorites? Let's start cutting out the ones that you do not care for the most or that you could take or leave. And between one visit and the next, we'll just get rid of the take or leave ones first and get you down to the ones that are your four favorites. And then you're like, okay, now of the four favorites, which is the one that you really feel like you'll be jammed up if you don't smoke that one? Some patients are like, I will really be jammed up if I do not smoke that cigarette with my coffee in the morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. What about the one after dinner? you know, it's weird. I haven't wanted the one after dinner. Okay. Okay. And then what about the one at bedtime? I really like that one. Okay, cool. So this next month, we're going to do this one and this one. And then when I get the person to about two cigarettes, that is when you can start getting your mind ready to break up with your best friend. Mm. Right. Um, Because it's not just now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to oversimplify people who like are specialists in you know, nicotine dependence. I don't want to like act like I've crack the code on your whole livelihood is, but well, you're not going to publish this later. I know. Right. No. (laughs) Um, But what I do think is that there are things that sort of sabotage you. As a matter of fact, you know, remember when I was talking to you about atomic habits? Yeah. And it's not so much the goal as much as it is the process, right? So if my goal is to work out every morning and I decide what I'm going to do is step out of bed, put on my workout clothes, that might help me get closer to working out. So if the goal is for you to quit smoking, instead of me just being like, boom, here's the quit date. Why don't we peel away the ones that you don't care about? And then we can get ourselves to a point where we're ready, you know, so then maybe we can insert a different atomic habit, right? We could say, hey, okay, so now when you get up in the morning, and you're going to make your coffee, but then soon as you would have had your cigarette, you're just going to go for a walk. We're going to try that. What do you think? I don't think that's going to work. Okay. Well, you're going to get a Sudoku book and you're going to do that. Or you're going to do a crossword puzzle. or You're going to do a word find. I mean, these are things that have like helped some of my patients. It has to be something in exchange for what you were doing before. Yeah. But I just used to always think of everything in terms of nicotine addiction and trying to get you to a point that you feel so empowered about your health that you don't want to do anything to harm your body. And that isn't really how our brains work. It's like all about dopamine and dopamine is like, yo, let's, let's surge right now and give you this little happy moment. So I I think a little bit differently. I think about the old friend that you asking the person to part from. I love that. Patients will tell you what to do. And the more experience you have in the primary care setting or in the hospital setting, you see people who get to the other side of the complicated. You do. Mm. There are people who were users of crack cocaine who aren't anymore or were injection drug users who aren't anymore, who did smoke daily and don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And everybody kind of has a slightly different path to getting there. Yeah. But the other thing I add is that this is not your lot in life. You, this does this is not something that isn't attainable for you. It's attainable for you to be a person who doesn't smoke cigarettes. It is attainable for you to be a person who does not use crack cocaine that that's attainable for you. And sometimes I think that might be like half the battle just to look at somebody and believe it when you say it. And I do believe it when I say it, I'm not lying. I'm not fronting because I have had the experience of seeing people do it. And if you see one person who did it, it's probably another person that could do it. Yeah. 
That's my take on it, girl. Free wisdom from uh, Kimberly Manning. I'll take that and put it in the bank. All right, girl. I just want to say that this year with you has been really great. It has been a joy. It has been therapeutic and it has made me better. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for making the space with me and to everybody who's listening, who shared in the space with us. It's been, it's been spectacular. Yeah. And y'all, every time I tell Ashley that I love her on our podcast, it's because it's true. It's not a canned thing. And we talk a lot about normalizing emotion, but I also think we need to normalize expressions of love while people are alive and able to hear it. Mm. So one more time, in case you didn't hear me say it for the whole year that I said it before. I love you, Ashley McMullen. I'm Mm. so proud of you. I love you too. And guess what, y'all? I'm not crying. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for it. (laughs) Nope, nope, nope. It's all joy. All right. We'll make it the best week with those nice twists with their hang time. Absolutely. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam, and especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.